uh, first from Isaiah 29 and Mark 7. Um, you may want to open up to Isaiah 29 and maybe find Mark 7 and have that, um, keep your finger in that. I'll be jumping straight over. I'll give you a moment. For Isaiah, maybe just go to the middle and then just flick forward if, you, if you're trying to find it. So we'll start uh, Isaiah 29, verse 13 through 19. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, Who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down, as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, You did not make me? Can the, potter say, uh, can the pot say to the potter, You know nothing? In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field, and the fertile fields seem like a forest? In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Flicking over to Mark chapter 7, I'll be reading the entire chapter. <coughs> the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they gave their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding onto human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, On your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared, all food's clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is what, 
uh, it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these things come in from inside and defile a person. Jesus left the place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know about it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Cyrene and Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through to Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephathah, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Thanks, Bertie. Morning, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open at our sermon passage, Mark 7, and I'll lead us briefly in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word and by the power of your spirit uh, that's at work within and among us. We pray you'd help us to set aside any hindrances or distractions from us uh, trembling and rejoicing at your word this morning and that we will become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ as we listen. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, brothers and sisters, a big part of, of uh, the teaching of Mark 7 that's before us this morning has to do with a, uh, the warning uh, of the spiritual dangers of observing religious traditions. And on one level, that means I've got a bit of a tough gig this morning because, frankly, we are not a very traditional church. Uh, I'm sure you're aghast that I'm not wearing my clergy collar or that I have my robes on this morning. Uh, you'll notice there's no communion rail. We don't have stained glass windows narrating the passion of uh, uh, Jesus. We don't have a baptismal font, although we do have Jono's good salad bowl when the time uh, is right. Uh, uh, we don't have a sung liturgy for which I'm rather thankful because when people sporadically burst into song as if their whole life is a big musical, I tend to have a laughing fit. Uh, we don't have a pipe organ, though that kind of would be kind of cool, like if we, yeah, that would be all right. Uh, we do have little bits of verbal sort of liturgy that we've wrote, memorised, you know, so like uh, uh, if I was to say, this is the word of the Lord, you might say, yeah, there's a little bit, right? And if there's a... a, a, a um, a really big job we've got to do, and Jono's announcing it, he might say, many hands. Yes, uh, that's the, um, uh, what do we call it? That's the sacred collect of St. Jonathan of Squire, uh, that one. It's very traditional. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll have Christ is risen. 
And getting old school, Anglican, the Lord be with you. And real old school, it'd be interesting to weed anyone out if they can respond to this. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's all right, I'm with you, I like that stuff. But overall, we are very much a not traditional kind of church. And speaking about the potential spiritual dangers of uh, observing religious tradition can seem a bit of a waste of time. However, and you knew there'd be a however, there are two very good reasons why we ought to take careful note of how Jesus goes head on against religious traditionalism. The first reason is that the kind of attitude that makes religious traditions spiritually dangerous is a kind of attitude that you and I are equally easily prone to adopting. And secondly, the world at large, the multitudes who live around us, who currently remain under the wrath of God and who desperately need to know the truth that is in Jesus, many of them, perhaps even the vast majority of them, believe that being a Christian is all about observing religious traditions. And therefore, we do very well to learn directly from our Lord about how we can accurately correct such unhelpful misunderstanding. So without further ado, let's together get stuck into Mark chapter 7. The scene gets set when some Pharisees uh, uh, and the religious leaders again come into a uh, rather stark conflict with Jesus and bring against him what I'm sure would have been considered a, a very serious and damning charge. It's a charge that implies that Jesus was acting in a way that frankly disassociates him from the true chosen people of God. After noticing that Jesus' disciples did not observe the traditional Jewish washing ceremonies before they eat, verse 5, and uh, the words won't be on the screen, they'll be in your Bible, verse 5, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And yes, in form, it is a question, but in effect, it's a blatant charge that assumes guilt. It's as if someone came and said to me, Ben, why aren't you wearing your robes instead of living like a godless pagan when you preach? Right? It's that, that sort of level of, of charge. And it's here where we get to the very heart of the problem of Pharisaism, one of the reasons Jesus and the Pharisees uh, never see eye to eye. Uh, and therefore, it's where we get to the heart of the problem of religious traditionalism. The assumption is that observing man-made rituals, traditions, somehow puts you in favour with God such that disobeying man-made religious practices puts you out of favour with God. It is such a big problem that all the rest of Mark chapter 7 is really about Jesus smashing this one head on. Mark wants to make sure that the charge of the Pharisees at the beginning of the chapter uh, is seen as the really big issue to be dealt with, uh, not least because in verses 3 and 4 he even makes sure that he includes this explanatory note about the ceremonial washing that the Pharisees are talking about, just in case there's some, you know, Gentile reader who doesn't know the Jewish practices, just so everyone can be on the same page. The first part of Jesus' response to the charge is, not surprisingly, to teach from the Word of God. The very word that these Pharisees prided themselves on, 
on the upholding and obeying. He teaches a truth that I suspect most of us will think is really obvious, but that many would have found, and even today many still do find, to be basically scandalous. Jesus teaches that the observance of religious traditions, rites, rituals are often a disguise for sinfulness. In fact, it's often true that observing religious traditions is ironically a direct act of rebellion against the true and living God. Read with me from verse 6. He, that is Jesus, replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Using the matter of ceremonial washing of a kind that was never commanded in the scriptures, but which was instituted by the Jewish religious leaders, using that issue... Uh, as a means by which to imply that Jesus is not a true man of God, shows that these religious leaders place more value on what they've made up than what God has revealed. They have chosen religion over revelation. They have chosen tradition over truth. They have chosen what humans have created rather than what God has commanded. And the reason for doing so? Simple. Their hearts are far from the Lord. The holding firmly to religious traditions is very often an indication that someone's heart is far from the Lord. Jesus gives an absolutely damning example of it in the following verses. Read with me from verse 9. And he, Jesus, continued... You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honour your father and mother, and whoever curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. mother. Thus you nullify, that is make irrelevant, the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like this. Well, I've put aside a, a lump of money because the rabbi at the local synagogue told me I should do that. Uh, God expects that of me. Uh, I haven't heard of that. It's not in the Torah, but he calls it Corban. All right, no worries. Oh, no, mum and dad are really sick. Uh, I need to go and help them and travel there and take care of their medical expenses. Wait a minute, I can't because the money that I would need to do that, I've set aside to God. A man-made rule stops me obeying what my heavenly father has taught. For these Pharisees, in order to appear religious, in order to be self-satisfied that they're doing well spiritually, they've held on to man-made religion, which has become the very means by which they actually express their rebellion toward the God they think they're worshipping. And so it is very sadly, I've got to say so, it is for many people today. Religious traditions look as if they draw people near to God. But many are, in fact, the very expression of people defying God and moving away from him. Then comes the second devastating blow in the teaching of Jesus. The sad but obvious truth that no amount of religious practices can actually change the sinful heart 
that is by its very nature far away from the Lord. Ritual can't deal with total depravity. Religious practices can't change the sinful heart that is bent on living in rebellion against God. Jesus teaches that nothing outside a person can defile them. It's what comes from inside, what originates from inside that makes one unclean. And because when Jesus says that it is a parable, did you notice? That means it requires an explanation. Uh, And then Jesus happens to give the explanation from verse 18, where look at it in Bibles, verse 18, he explains, Are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Verse 20, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them from, for it is from within, out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, brothers and sisters, I am all for washing your hands and your dishes before you eat. Please do. But don't for a second think that having clean hands suddenly means you therefore have a clean heart. The heart is the place where evil originates. And that's true for all of us. And that includes the satanic lie that we can tell ourselves that our hearts really aren't all that bad. That in itself is actually part of the evil that originates in the heart. No amount of ceremonial washing will fix that. No amount of denying yourself red meat on Good Friday will fix that. No amount of saying Hail Mary over and over will fix that. And in fact, it's blasphemous to say that. No amount of praying to Ganesh during Diwali will fix that. No amount of fasting during Yom Kippur or Ramadan We'll fix that. No amount of intense, immersing, inspirational, congregational singing will fix that. The bread and wine that you ingest during the Lord's Supper, that goes to the stomach, not to the heart. It will not fix that. The water that I've poured on people's heads as I've baptised them, it does not clean the defiled heart. And yet you and I, And anyone really is capable of viewing all these things, even those last couple, which are actually ordained of God, we're capable of viewing those things as a means by which we somehow put ourselves in God's good books. So if none of that stuff works, well, the obvious question, what does? And of course, the answer is that it's not about trusting in a tradition, it's about trusting in a person. Jesus demonstrates this wonderfully in the next section where he finds someone who doesn't live even by the commands of God and certainly probably doesn't even know the traditions of the Pharisees, definitely doesn't obey them. He travels far north to where there's less Jews and more Gentiles and he's approached by a woman who has a demon-possessed daughter. From verse 26, just to highlight how defiled she is, the woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. Oh, gee, bad. Imagine. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, counters Jesus, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. In other words, Jesus is saying, my ministry is first and foremost for Jews, for the chosen people of Israel. They're the ones that I've come to save 
and restore. But somehow, amazingly, this woman is both humble enough and therefore, I would say, wise enough to have worked out that even with Jesus' right priority of Jewish mission, she should expect a flow-on effect, blessing to the ends of the earth from the children of Abraham. Verse 28, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Looks like she understood more of Isaiah than the Pharisees did. In that same passage Jesus has quoted from, Isaiah 29, which I'll refer to again, which we had read for us, uh, because Israel had gone so far from the Lord, God himself decided that he personally would need to show up and restore them. And later on in Isaiah, it turns out that in the process of God himself restoring Israel, blessing would then flow to all the nations. Somehow this woman knows that and has the kind of humility where she puts herself in the place of a dog relying on nothing she can do but desperately begging Jesus to throw her a bone. She has no religious righteousness to trust in. She's only got Jesus to trust in. Which is why, of course, verse 29, then Jesus told her, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and, of course, found the child lying on the bed and with the demon gone. Jesus has just undefiled someone from the inside without any contact, without any ceremonial washing and without any of the traditions of the Pharisees. The same, by the way, can be said for all of us who know Jesus as our Lord, who trust in Jesus alone. It's why, just before we could even sing together, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? It's that our souls to him belong. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? Obviously nothing. And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. And then, as if to give a final and sort of touchdown, successful defence against this charge from the Pharisees, Jesus then goes on to show that he himself is the God who would come and fulfil Isaiah's prophetic expectations, that he would solve the problem of people honouring God with their lips whilst having hearts far away from him. You remember that first reading, Isaiah 29, that on account of Israel's hearts being far from the Lord, the Lord himself would come and would once more astound these people with wonder upon wonder. And also from that same uh, chapter, when he comes and astounds them with wonder and, uh, upon wonder, he would also, verse 18, in that day the, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. That, that will mark the day that when God does this work. And so with that background in mind, we see that what Jesus does now at the end of Mark chapter 7 is to show that he himself is the God who would solve the problem of people honouring God only with their lips but having hearts that are far away. So read with me in your Bibles from verse 32. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. 
After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, then he spit, ill, and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh and said to him, Ephathah, which means be opened. Now this, of course, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loose, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but of course, the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. To use Isaiah's words, you might even say these people were astounded with wonder upon wonder at, as Jesus provide, uh, proves that, that he's the one who's able to give the kind of cleansing, supernatural cleansing, that ceremonial washing has no hope of doing. Of course, as I assume you all know, or I hope you know, and if you don't, I'm going to tell you, the reason Jesus could justly cleanse the sinful hearts of those who humbly trust in him is because he would willingly undergo an exchange. He would take upon himself all the sin that resides in your heart and mine and he would face the just condemnation that that sin deserves as he hung on the cross. And in turn, he would credit us with his perfect righteousness, uniting us to him so that we might never need anything to somehow put us more in God's good books than we already are. Only humble trust in Jesus, not in tradition, not in religious rituals, only humble trust in Jesus can and does make someone permanently and continually righteous in the sight of God. I wouldn't be surprised if this is something that most, if not all of us, wholeheartedly already knew and agreed with and accepted. However, like I said at the beginning, it can be the case that at least the underlying attitude that this teaching corrects can be ours. I heard a wonderful story, uh, a, a lovely brother of mine who's a, um, a rector at a different church, had a new fellow come to his church and like you do when you're in ministry you go and get talking with a person hey just want to know what brings you here so I'm looking for a different church why well the one I'm at they keep they keep pushing evangelism you got to evangelize people you know tell people about Jesus blah 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 I don't I'm, I, I hate it I don't want to do it I'm sick of it I, I feel like I'm a useless Christian you know are you going to tell me that I have to evangelize like everyone else right now it is true that it's very honouring to God to tell people of the hope that they can have in Jesus. Evangelism is, is, is a God-ordained thing. But this faithful brother, good Christian minister, said to him, I want you to know that if you never evangelise another soul again, I will never in any way think of you any less in the kingdom of God, that you are thoroughly saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and him alone, and you need to have no worry whatsoever. And the guy responded, he goes, what? You really mean that? Yes, I really mean that. Jesus is the only hope. Jesus has done absolutely everything to make you thoroughly righteous in the sight of the Lord. You, you trust in Jesus? Yes, I do. Well, you, you're fine. And the guy was so happy. And you know what he said? That's awesome. I've got to go tell my friend. <laughs> you can see that he must have had some of that residual attitude that my religious performance is kind of the thing that, 
that's putting me in God, or my lack thereof is putting me out of God's good book, when he gets corrected that, you know, it's, it's uh, all you contribute, mate, is the evil of your heart, you need Jesus, right? When you got that, it becomes not a sort of a, a traditional observance, it becomes just a joyful, natural thing. I expect that I'm going to hear some people, probably in my evening congregation, tell me how the Taylor Swift concert was last night. Or maybe they've learnt not to by now, I don't know. But that would be very natural. They've done this thing, they thought it was amazing. (laughs) Contrary to what I think, they thought it was amazing. And so it's going to be very natural for them to tell me about what it was like. That's sort of what happens here. When it comes to helping people who trust in religious tradition, of which there are many, a little helpful line that I like to use is, how do you cope with the pressure? If you really think, you know, you've got to perform X, Y, Z, you've got to show up to X, Y, Z, mass, the mosque, the synagogue, you've got to make sure you do this to your you know, child as a ritual in order for them to be right with How do you cope with the pressure? It's a very good line. How, how, I, I get that. I get that you're really into that, but how do you put up with the pressure? Because, you know, what, what if you don't get it right? Or what if you haven't done enough in God's good books, you know, like, just to get people to think, and you'd hope that if someone's, you know, not as thick as two planks, they'd eventually ask, well, how how do you approach this stuff? Oh, it's funny, you should ask. Let me tell you about Jesus, how Jesus paid it all, how faith alone is what saves me, and how I rejoice, therefore, to do the kind of things that God would have me do, not as a chore, but as a privilege. How do you cope with the pressure? There's a little one to to lock away in the kit bag, you know, have that in the arsenal for when you're you're going to go on mission. Uh, And by way of implication, seeing as I've already started speaking about them, two things that I can, uh, uh, that I think flow fairly nicely from what uh, God is teaching us this morning. Number one, it may be the case that you need to get in a cleansing, but it is also often the case that you have it and you need to appreciate inner cleansing tell you what I mean by that. One of my all-time favourite passages in the New Testament just happens to be a passage that contrasts religious ritual and what it achieves with saving trust in Jesus and what that achieves. Uh, It's Hebrews chapter 9, 13 through 14, and I'll put the words for this one on the screen. It says, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them, that is, make them holy, so that they are outwardly clean. There's, there's the limit. It makes them outwardly clean. And here's the huge contrast, verse 14. How much more then, and it's rhetorical, like stupidly more, infinity more, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences. That's the inside, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Notice it's not we serve the living God so that we might get our consciences cleansed. How much does he cleanse our conscience so we're free? If you're someone who trusts in Jesus alone for your salvation, I suspect most of you are, I've got no doubt there will be times when you need to take these words very much to heart. I know I have. I know what it feels like to be greatly frustrated 
and sad and angry and depressed at my sin. I know what it feels like to have some terrible thing that only I and perhaps a few others even know about that absolutely eats away at my insides. Jesus truly, in reality, has done everything required to cleanse that guilty conscience. God really does see the perfect righteousness of Jesus in you and you are freed to serve the living God. If you're someone, and I don't know everyone here, if you're someone who does not yet trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, then I want to assure you that you can know perfect forgiveness. You can know perfect restoration. You can be relieved of any internal sense of guilt and fear in how you currently relate to God. Turn away from being the boss of your own life. Deny yourself. Give up your life. Take up your cross and humbly trust in Jesus. Last thing, it's just a little one, but it's a clever one. Another bit of a a throwaway thing just that, that works for me. Maybe it will for you. Watch for the potholes. Ben, what on earth do you mean by that? I asked my, uh, my sons, I've got three sons, what's a really cool car? And they were able to tell me straight away. I don't know, it was MK something or other, right? Okay, I'll use that one for you. The car I drive is a dinged up Kia Carnival that's pretty old. If there's a pothole that I can avoid, I will avoid it. But if it's not, I kind of don't care. It's already dinged up. And uh, I honestly, I promise you, my wife would very gladly say this to anyone. It just happens that she's the one that's dinged it up, right? She's unashamed about that, but it just makes, it's the stereotype is very true in this regard, right? And so I, you know, I don't care about it. Um, What we have in Jesus, the real cleansing, the real making us righteous in the sight of God is extremely valuable, So if I had an extremely valuable car, then I'd be a lot more concerned about the potholes. Given how wonderful it is to know the freedom we have in Christ to serve the living God, it makes sense that we just kind of every now and then do a little check. Is there something that threatens to pull me away from trusting entirely in his work on my behalf? Am I... You know, I'm one of those rare people that actually shows up to church on time and I sit down the front like I should and because I've been doing that for weeks, God is a bit happier with me than, than he otherwise would be. I, well, I got chosen to lead at, at kids' church, so I, you know, I, I'm a follower of Jesus and I've got this in my kit bag as well, right? All the good things. As a matter of fact, please do show up earlier, right? That's a good thing, okay? But you've got something so valuable in Christ and Christ alone, that it makes sense just to look every now and then, or is there something that kind of threatens to make me think that my religious work, my observance, my performance is at risk of pulling me away? Is there a pothole I've just got to avoid? To that end, let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has done absolutely everything to make us thoroughly, completely, continuously righteous 
in your sight, so much so that it looks so stupid and ridiculous to rely on religious traditions, especially man-made religious traditions. Spare us from that, Father. Help us take Jesus' huge rebuke to the Pharisees to heart. And Father, please give us uh, uh, wisdom when it comes to speaking to those who are yet to know uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus, those who might be caught in man-made religious tradition uh, as we speak to them, Father, to boldly and lovingly uh, proclaim the freedom that we enjoy in Christ. And Father, help us to watch ourselves, to so value who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that we uh, rightly keep a bit of a, uh, an awareness at things that might uh, cause us in our hearts to compromise his grace. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.